maximizing the alignment is one of the most central core things we want to communicate uh, here today. When somebody reads your deal structure, if it looks like everybody else, or if there's not alignment, then the sophisticated investor is just not going to respond. Sometimes people will engage with part of our business that has uh, investor databases. There's a one pager on that in the handout in front of you on the desk. Um, we have 52 different niche investor databases, cannabis investors, technology investors, angel investors, single family offices, etc. The best way to use that is anytime you buy a plane ticket to travel somewhere, you look up who's local and try to reach out to three to five of them to have a face-to-face -face meeting and actually build a real relationship, not to send an email blast out to thousands of investors and cross your fingers at a few reply. Um, and so if you are reaching out to investors using the database, we've had people come to me and say, yeah, I reached out to 100 people. No one invested. No one replied. What's wrong with your database? I said, okay, well, you know, I don't know when you emailed them, what you emailed them, if you have a professional email address or if it, is it a Yahoo email or God forbid like AOL or something. Uh, you know, do you have a website and does the website match the domain name you emailed them from? Is your face on the signature? Does your website have helpful things on it? Do you have a one-liner describing your investment that's super concise, compelling, and looks different than all your thousand competitors? Did you follow up politely and persistently or just email them one time? Did you call them and try to meet with them? Or did you just send an email blast to a thousand people? Right, there's a hundred factors that go into it. One factor is knowing this, this investor exists on planet Earth, how you approach them, uh, just like the white belt versus the black belt, that makes all the difference in the world, right? And the reason I bring that up is that the sophisticated investor will look at the level of alignment, how unique the strategy is, how high quality the team is. And if it doesn't look amazing, then they're just moving on in half a second, three seconds, right? They can't survive the day otherwise looking at too many deals at one time. So that's really, really important to understand. Um, sophistication often grows the longer a family has been wealthy um, in number of years and the amount of net worth they have. If they're still working full time and they don't have a team supporting them, then that keeps the sophistication level low, even if they are worth 10, 20, 30 million dollars, I found. Um, and one thing that John brought up, which I love, because I don't think he's heard me say this at, at other events we've hosted, is just that we think that there's there's three main trust curves that people need to move up to be comfortable as an investor. They need to trust the deal uh, itself. And if they're local to the deal, it's much more likely that they're confident in it. You might invest in self-storage or medical practices all day long, but if you're based in San Diego and the deal is in Guam or New Zealand or London, much less likely to invest in that deal versus if it's in San Diego. Um, if it's familiar to you by industry, and you know, know medical practice like the back of your hand, you're more likely to invest. And if you know and trust the leadership team really well, you're more likely to invest. So the location, the industry, uh, and then the, the te team itself is what determines uh, an investment getting done or not usually. And what John talked about is looking at where you created your wealth, what industries you know really well, and then you can have more high conviction due diligence in those areas. Um, and that is something that can be a shortcut to investors here in the room that want to get started on direct investments, but it also can be a shortcut to those people raising capital here in the room. People that already know you, you've probably already gone to them for raising capital, but who is local to you or the assets you're buying and who made their money in your industry you could go to um, and either be an advisory board member or a lead investor you give special terms to. So as sophistication level grows, there's an evolution from any investment they look at is exciting because they look at four, oops, four deals a year and maybe they invest in one or two of them. Uh, that's the lowest level. Uh, maybe a, a golf club, you know, type investor that's, you know, worth three to five, seven, $10 million. Um, maybe at the next level, it'd be only great investments from people they already trust. 
Uh, but the next level would be actually designing your strike zone as an investor and only investing in excellent investments that meet that strike zone. And then the next layer is structuring the deal well and having it be tax efficient and having it be the one out of a thousand anomaly type deal. So I'm going to go through a number of deal structures. Some of these are relatively common, so I'm going to fly through them really quick just to remind you of them as existing, and you can do further research on these either on your own or by asking questions here at the workshop uh, on them. Uh, we aren't the end-all expert on all of these structures that I'm going to mention, but we know a lot about them, and there'll be people here in the room that could help you with going deeper on them as needed. So convertible notes are really popular for companies raising capital. Um, personally, as an investor, um, I would not do a convertible note. There could be times when there's an exception to be made of that, but so far over 16 years, I've never done one or recommended a client do one. Oftentimes what it is, is basically a company is not sure at what valuation they should put on their company at this point. It's hard to value, it's too early to value. So what they do is say, well, we'll give you 8% or 10% interest on your money, whatever it may be, um, until our next raise. And at that next raise time, we'll give you a discount to that next raise valuation. So let's say our next raise is at a $20 million valuation. We'll give you a 25% discount off that valuation. And in the meantime, you make 8 or 10% money that accrues up to that point. Um, the challenge I have with this is that many times it's really early stage when there's a convertible note. And by the time they do the next raise, they might be 10 times further down the path. And the company might be de-risked by half or three times de-risked. And so only getting a 25% discount, you know, in my mind, if you could put a valuation on it, it'd be way, way lower than a 25% discount of the next round. But some people have the appetite. And like John said, you can take a small amount of money and cross your fingers and maybe get that higher return later. Some people like doing that. Um, personally, we just don't invest in a ton of super early stage things. So it's just not our, our flavor of what we like. Uh, venture debt, we have clients that do this more often, uh, and that would be providing debt to a company that maybe hopefully has some sort of collateral uh, behind what you're investing in. And you're getting, you know, nowadays, uh, since interest rates went up, it used to be, you know, seven, eight, 10%. Now more likely it's nine, 10, 12, 14, 15% returns on the debt with an equity kicker or a right of participation at the exit. And the difference of those two things is really critical because uh, some people have never heard of a right of participation or an equity warrant when the company has an exit. If you have equity, then if there's any distributions or dividends, depending on your equity share class, you might get those along the way. If it's a right of participation, you might get no distributions, but when they sell the company, maybe you get 1% of the company when they sell one day. If you have equity, typically, unless there's anti-dilution clauses, you could get diluted many times over and your 1% turns into 0.2%. You have 20 basis points. If you have a right of participation at 1% when they sell the company, depending on how it's structured, they could raise capital 10 more times. You still get 1% when they sell the company. So that's a huge difference. And people will swallow a right of participa participation easier because it's way down the line. They don't have to pay you dividends along the way. It sounds better to them. But if you're smart about it, it also can prevent you from getting diluted over and over and over again. Um, and it's a way to reward investors who really helped you early on get a start and get things going. Um, just to show of hands, how many people in here were already very familiar with the right of participation versus like an equity stake in structuring deals? So a couple, a couple of people, and this can be um, helpful with a real estate platform or a sponsor platform. You help someone else launch. You might be here because you're doing your seventh multifamily syndication or doing your your third you know, medical practice deal or whatever operating business unit you're in. And as you grow your platform, you might find someone else who was you five years ago and you can be an advisory board member to them and you can structure deals like this that are relevant to the operating business side of things. 